0: Hello and welcome to this very exciting mini-series here at Associated. My name is Francesca and I'm so happy to be back recording a new series and even more excited to be introducing my co-hosts for this season, so welcome Tunde and Danielle.
1: Hey Francesca, glad to be back and as you were saying, we've got a new face here at Associated. We've got Danielle, so maybe Danielle we be cool for the listeners to hear a bit about you.
2: Yeah, totally fine. So. Hi, Danielle. Right now I work at the Blue Yard team, which is a Berlin and New York-based VC fund. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, mostly had uh, product roles and worked at a later stage VC, originally from Atlanta to Jamaican and British parents, and really excited to be part of the team.
0: Danielle, we are so excited to have you on the show. And I can think of a million and one reasons why that we want to have you on, not least because of your beautiful American accent. <laughs> but that's turning the tables on yourself. Why did you want to join Associated for this season?
2: Yeah, first of all, because I love people saying that my American accent is beautiful. I don't really hear that too often. So (laughs) uh, surrounding myself with other accents and being the exciting one is something a little nuanced. But I think outside of that, really excited about the way that we're doing this podcast, which I thought was a little bit innovative. So we have a little bit more of a documentary style format as the way that we've been describing it. So we have a plethora of different voices from founders to VCs, from the US, as well as Europe. And we're getting the ability to, you know, weave a lot of those voices together to form a narrative and be able to ask a lot of pretty deep questions and then get to have the kind of in real time comparison of one person's perspective to the other, which I thought was really exciting. And hopefully from a listener's perspective too, it's also quite interesting to hear. The kind of mastermind of this entire thing has been Tindane. and he's been kind of came up with the idea. He also has been gracious enough to narrate the first episode. So, um, you know, always also want to hear from you, like what was exciting to you and then how are we going to be structuring this going forward?
1: Yeah, so really excited to be able to kind of bring this to, to everyone we've been working on this over the past few months interviewed 12 plus VCs from across the ecosystem and so what we have for you is seven episodes around the kind of influx and impact of American capital into the European ecosystem in kind of a documentary style so covering topics ranging from how will collaboration and competition work in the market to why they're coming now and how people structure their funds. The episodes will be coming out every two weeks and there'll be seven of them in total. But really the, the core motivation behind this was a desire to really demystify um, or to dive deeper into topics that we often, as like VCs, talk about within our partnerships, within industry events, et cetera, but don't really get that much discussion in the public eye. So really excited to be bringing episode one to you right now. And it begins. Enjoy. Without a doubt, the European venture landscape has changed over the past few years. In 2021, over $100 billion was raised by European startups, more than 10 times the amount raised six years previously in 2015. Not all of this new capital has come from local sources. In recent times, we've seen multiple international funds setting up shop in Europe. In the last three years alone, big brand US venture firms like Sequoia, Bessemer and Lightspeed have established teams and offices on European shores. Moreover, investors and founders alike report increasing levels of activity and interest from US funds, even those without physical presence on the continent. This influx of foreign capital is seen by some as European tech's coming of age. In this mini-series, we aim to explore how Europe has evolved over the past few years, why US funds are coming now, the effects this will likely have on the market, and the changes that they'll need to overcome. In this first episode, we'll explore the what and the why of the great European expansion. While Europe is currently riding high on a wave of interest, it hasn't always been so. Just over 10 years ago, Europe had a much worse reputation from a venture perspective.
3: I remember when I was thinking of joining Borderton, I asked several people for advice. That's Harry Briggs, a managing partner at Omer's Ventures, a North
1: American fund. He launched Omer's European operations in 2019 after 10 years as a venture investor, having started his career at Borderton in 2009.
3: When I asked someone who worked at Cambridge Associates, they advise a lot of limited partners on which funds to put their money in. They basically said, a European venture is a backwater. There aren't really any good funds. No one makes money in European venture. Index is pretty good. Accel okay. Most of the other funds are not really going anywhere. Alderton seems decent, still too early to say. A lot of people had got burnt putting money into European venture.
1: This sentiment that Europe wasn't the place to be for tech startups was not just limited to LPs. Just 10 years ago, it wasn't uncommon for European founders to move continents in search of capital.
4: When I joined venture in, in 2010, initially with Atomico, very few people wanted a career in venture in Europe. And most of my friends who are entrepreneurs left Europe to go and start their businesses.
1: That's James Wise, a partner at Borderton Capital, one of the oldest venture funds in Europe. Borderton is primarily focused at the Series A stage and has invested in companies such as Revolut, ePop, and Darktrace.
4: In fact, uh, so my closest friend, Hariki, who uh, is CEO of founder of Cardless, they went to Y Combinator initially out in the Valley because they felt that although they were European and building a European-based business, because their product particularly suited the European market, that they had to go to YC in order to get some of the expertise and funding uh, and talent they needed to grow.
1: In lockstep with this was the fact that the region had relatively few successes versus the US or China. Here's Harry Briggs again.
3: In the 90s and the 90s hadn't produced that many great companies. There was Betfair, there was MySQL, there, were, there was Just Eat, I guess. R- really not, not that many great companies. Sorry, I mean, I'm skipping the most obvious of Skype. And this lack of success was not lost on LPs.
1: LPs, or limited partners, are the people who invest in venture funds. It took 39 months for us to raise their fund. That's Hussein Kanji, a partner at Hawks and Ventures. A European seed fund, which was an early investor in several European success stories, such as Deliveroo and Darktrace, both of which have gone public. Here he is talking about the process of raising Hoxton Fund One in the early
5: 2010s. We'd given ourselves 24 months, thinking the fundraiser would take 12 to 18 months. At 24 months, that was a real hard stop for us to figure out, like, how do we keep financing this thing? Because you're drawing upon your own savings and the wealth that you've made before. But the fallacy is, you know, it is a fallacy, right? So it, usually people don't think about Sun Clause the right way and they continue to plow on and if you've spent two years of your life trying to do something which your family miserably to do it, i.e. raising the fund. One thing, the rational thing to do is to walk away and then go do something else. The irrational thing, which is usually what you end up doing is to say, God damn it, I'm going to go figure out a way to go make this thing happen. And, and we powered through and like I said, it took 39 months for us to raise that fund, we started our fund. Before Notion started, we, we compared a lot of notes with kind of our peers who were setting up funds, Notion's first fund came and went before we were actually even in business. It was that slow. And I think most of the people that we spoke to basically said one, one variation. So we talked to a European family or a European institutional fund uh, that was investing in venture, the history of losses in Europe and the history of venture funds that simply did not make money in Europe was so long that they said that this was never going to work. And so they weren't, there wasn't very much conviction about Europe. And then when you talk to someone who's a little bit more open-minded, you know, the other question that you would usually So you basically want me to pay, and this is usually a family office, you want me to pay you to gamble away my money on, on, on startup, so that was the European context. The American context was, we understand venture. We just don't think it works at all in Europe and the best in class funds, benchmark and Accel have common set up there and they've had terrible returns. So what makes you think that you guys can do it any differently?
1: This negative sentiment extended not just to American LPs, but also to American funds themselves and how they viewed European startups.
6: So I was one of the, um, I think the first founder in Germany that ever raised funding from Sequoia.
1: Christian Reber is a German serial entrepreneur. He founded Sequoia Back to Wunderlist and currently runs Pitch, A venture-backed startup that has raised over $80 million in its last round from funds like Thrive, Tiger, and
6: Lakestar. I felt super proud and honored to be backed by such a prestigious firm from the US. And I, I did ask the Sequoia team at that time, like, why do you never, why don't you have an office in Europe? It's like a, it's a thriving ecosystem, lots of new companies are being created and I remember that the person I spoke to took out a napkin and drew drew a chart and he drew like he he told me like look Christian there are three really interesting markets in the world for venture one is the United States he drew a long line and this is the total market cap of all technology companies in the United States it's massive then here you have China, the second really relevant market. And he drew the total market cap of technology businesses in China. It was even bigger, I think at the time. And then he drew a dot for Europe. And this is the total market cap of all technology businesses in Europe in comparison to those other markets. And I was like, really? And I guess at the time, yeah, there just weren't that many interesting, innovative technology companies in Europe. In the last 10 years, Europe's standing in the startup world has changed
1: significantly. No longer seen as a backwater, the European ecosystem is the place to be. European tech has become fashionable. Here's Zoe Chambers, a partner at Frontline Ventures, a fund with two distinct strategies. The first of which focuses on pan-European pre-seed and seed investments, and the second focused on backing American companies and helping them as they cross over into Europe.
0: So when I started, I remember telling my mother this was my job. I don't think she had a clue what that meant. I think all she realised was that I wasn't going to be a lawyer anymore and that I was therefore clinically insane and needed to be sectioned.
1: Speaking in 2022, Zoe has seen a paradigm shift in the perception of venture roles. Startups and entrepreneurship have gone from insane to admirable.
0: But what I'm really seeing is both entrepreneurship and investment into a risky asset class has become an acceptable and actually revered profession, which I definitely have found interesting. I'm sure it will go off the cliff now. But I think that definitely surprised me. I wasn't expecting this kind of weird demigod status that some of the investors in the ecosystem have.
1: And these changes are not merely limited to perception. The last few years have seen a mass of new European funds emerging with a mandate to invest in local startups. I've been surprised
5: by how much money has come into this industry. That's Hoxton Ventures' Hussein again. So I, I used to keep a spreadsheet. It was a community-oriented spreadsheet. So it, was, it was pre-airtable, there was Google spreadsheet, where I used to keep track of the seed firms that were starting after us. And we got to about 125 line items in that spreadsheet. And I gave up. Like, there were a, like when we first raised, it was a struggle. You no, know, probably less than 10 funds that kind of got set up, maybe really closer to five than to, even to the, their own. A few years after us, there were like a hundred and these days, the number must be like 300 or something like that. There's so many people who've set up funds, many of them first-time fund managers, you know, that there's there's a ton of capital going into the industry. I've been surprised. I did not expect there to be that much money going into the European tech opportunity. And this is a lot of family offices playing in this space. There's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of capital chasing after stuff.
1: These new funds have come in all sorts of shapes and sizes funds have become increasingly diverse in their investment mandates and compositions.
0: So we have seen more talented companies get created, more capital flooding, every year seems to break records, new funds emerge, new types of fund emerge.
1: Zoe Chambers again.
0: I think new types of investor have definitely emerged. And you know, I talk as a quote unquote female diverse investor, like that's, that's definitely been an amazing up and to the right journey that we've also seen. And then I think we've seen different sectors go through hype cycles, which is always the way. And I actually think we've followed the pattern of the states. What were a lot of generalist funds have become more specialist in their approach. Even if they have a generalist umbrella, they have sub-teams who have more specific focuses. So I think, I guess, how I would bracket all of that together is a level of sophistication, which I'm not quite sure was there before.
1: Similarly, the number of interesting founders has grown, driven, according to Christian Raber, by lessons learned building the companies of the previous decade.
6: I think the true reason for you know, this new wave of innovative companies is because the types of founders have evolved. So in the early days of the startup ecosystem, you had a lot of founders with a background in business, like lots of MBAs that started the new companies. And lately i think you you see a lot of engineers and designers actually starting new companies and i think they're just naturally more interested in building like new product experiences in general and creating innovation that way rather than building yet another like online shop for something and i don't want to be disrespectful i truly think that Companies like Delivery Heroes, Zalando or Rocket Internet have set the foundation for many decades ahead and really were the true, like, they set the groundwork for every new founder. Like, I think I wouldn't start, wouldn't have started a company in Berlin if, if those companies wouldn't have existed and wouldn't have done what they have done. So... Yeah, I think really that's the primary reason you see more tech talent coming up with great innovative ideas that you sometimes even don't even understand the first time you hear those ideas. But those companies often turn out to be really interesting businesses that create true
1: product innovations. This massive explosion in available funding combined with the increase in
6: fundable founders has led to a European gold rush. So the times have changed massively. I think in my, in the first company I've started, I think I've raised a hundred thousand euros for 20% of my company. So like those were the early days of venture and those kinds of deals just don't happen anymore. Now you usually see seed rounds with variations between 5 million, 10 million, maybe 20 million for a seed round. And I think those checks varied from maybe, I don't know, 400k to maybe even three, 4 million uh, euros. So times have changed drastically, which is absolutely incredible for both founders and innovation in general. Now that we go through this, um. I'm not sure if it's a recession, but it's very close to it for sure. I think we're, we're all of us, venture firms, founders, investors are, yeah, course correcting in a way. And I think all of us have to rethink if those variations were sustainable and actually made sense from a, from a financial point of view. But yeah, I think in the last two or three years, especially seed founders, like money was on the street, if you just said you start a new company and it's something interesting and you have relevant experience, then you had no challenge in raising funding. And there were times, especially like 10 years ago, where fundraising was insanely hard and, and, and super difficult. Yeah, And it looks like we're going back into another challenging phase. So far, this money on the floor approach has proved
1: itself lucrative for LPs and venture funds. According to James Wise, in terms of the internal rate of return, or IRR, a core metric for measuring fund performance, European VCs have outperformed their international peers in recent times. If you look at me, the
4: European fund's average IRR, the average IRR of the European VC fund, I think the fund over $100 million I think, is the baseline. It's higher in Europe than it has been in the U.S. and China over the last five years. Uh, and over the 10-year mark, Europe's overtaking China and catching up with the U.S. as well. So fundamentally, it's a great place to invest. It has been a great place to invest over the last decade.
1: This has attracted more interest from LPs and international
5: funds alike. I did not expect there to be that much money going into the European tech opportunity. Hussein Kanji again. And this is a lot of family offices playing in this space. There's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of capital chipping after stuff. And the other thing that I've been surprised by is I didn't, I didn't realize how aggressive the American funds were gonna come over. Already on the ground today, you have Sequoia and Bethemer and Blightsby and General Catalyst, NEA now has someone on the ground. Sutter Hill is, I think, setting up here. And if there's a lot more people kind of coming over, I think these American funds are here to stay. I think historically, if you looked at all of the series B's that were being done in Europe and you took away the the bad series feeds, and this is really easy to do in hindsight, because you can see which companies go on to be really good. If you take away bottom three quartiles and you only look at the top quartile of the series B, based on the ones that actually go on to become real, like real size company, 75% or so of those were funded by American firms. So the American firms have been in Europe for a long time and they've been cherry sure picking all the good stuff. So, so that's not surprising. The only surprising thing is so many of them are now opening up a presence here. In the end, the picture emerges
1: of a changed European tech ecosystem, one with an abundance of capital, several unicorns, and a proliferation of world-class founders and operators. One obvious question, however, remains. Why did Europe change? Several have suggested that Europe long had the ingredients necessary to spawn a vibrant tech ecosystem. Paul Murphy, a former founder and partner at Lightspeed, an American fund that opened its European offices last year, suggests that in some regards, Europe has structural advantages over the US.
5: The ingredients for growth are talent and capital, which of course like go hand in hand. I think everyone realized that the talent, the depth of talent is incredibly strong technically in Europe. I think arguably even deeper and stronger than in the US. So I think and then of course you've got the you know, cost advantages and, and things like that. So I think once the capital came in and the ambition came in of the founders, it just feel like you just saw these like
1: companies just take off. Founders like Dennis Kent, the founder of Prolific Machines, a biotech company that is enabling cell production at scale, agree that Europe's problem has never been a lack of talent.
7: I think the biggest thing that Europe has going for it is a highly educated and well-trained workforce. There's a lot of smart people out there that are being underutilized in my opinion. And so that in my mind is the number one argument for setting up an office or a lab in
1: Europe. The talent and strength of European universities has, however, been a fact for decades and does not in and of itself explain why the last 10 years have been so explosive for European tech. To answer the why now question, almost all of the investors and founders we spoke to pointed to a virtuous cycle of founders funding the next generation of founders
3: as the underlying mechanic. Harry Briggs again. You have a sort of virtuous cycle, there was already, I think a lot of talent in Europe, we have all these great universities and hundreds of millions of people, a bigger population than the US, but we were also starting to see, I guess, more people reach a really serious success and, and, and success brings a number of things, right? It brings more capital and more interest from, from investors. It brings more experience of what it's like to build these companies, there are more product managers or growth leaders or CFOs that have built and scaled companies that you can start to tap into that talent pool. But it also brings a kind of belief system that more and more people start to believe that this can be done. And in the same way that in the nineteen nineties, you know, every when I was at McKinsey, everyone was leaving McKinsey to go and join a dot com because it was like, oh look, this guy just made 50 million from basically writing some PowerPoint and getting a developer to do some code of it didn't last long. I I guess in a more serious way people were starting to see wow this is it, there are, there are just incredible opportunities to build enormous companies and they can potentially be built anywhere and we don't have to go to silicon valley anymore we can build them in estonia or in paris or in stockholm. So in the in that kind of period I guess particularly the early 2010s we started to see More and more big successful companies emerge, probably the most obvious being being Spotify, but in the fintech world, Klarna and Adyen and a little bit later Revolut, Monzo and so on and many more since. But it started to lead to this, as I say, virtuous cycle of more and more talent coming in to tech, more and more capital coming into tech and more and more experienced people coming out of these companies and going off to build their own companies. And I would say when I was looking for great companies to invest in in 2010, you would be scouring and you'd get excited about something once every couple of months. And nowadays, it's like I could probably get excited about a company every day because there are just so many great founders building really ambitious companies. And it's probably it's an order of magnitude, at least more, more great companies being built here. The catalyst for
1: this virtual cycle of founders begetting future founders remains disputed. Harry, for
3: instance, cites disillusionment with traditional jobs. In the sort of 2010s post-financial crisis, the mood really shifted. People didn't want to work in Goldman Sachs or McKinsey anymore. They were starting to want to pioneer their own thing.
1: While Hussein cites multiple factors, including business building becoming easier and the looser monetary
5: landscape. The platforms are becoming much more global. It was much easier to build a European company 2012 or 11 than it was in 2006 or seven, because you had Facebook, you had Google, you had Twitter, you had the app store and, and those leveled the playing field dramatically for European companies. We also didn't expect we we're going to be in such a loose kind of you know monetary policy world where there was so much capital going in, which would inflate a lot of this stuff up. Yeah, it's a good, it, it's good to be a venture person riding that up as long as you're exiting near the top before, before these things kind of change. But I think all of this kind of stimulus that went into the markets ended up finding its way to the tech economy. And then the fundamentals just got that much better.
1: Other factors as abstract as politics may have played a role in bringing a sort of talent to Europe.
6: I think the the reason why that happened um, or why that happens right now goes a long time back. Pages Christian Reber again. So I think when Trump became president, a lot of Europeans that worked in the United States, and even Americans that worked in technology companies in the US decided, I don't think I want to do business here anymore and maybe explore living somewhere else and starting businesses somewhere else. So a lot of talent has moved to Europe either for the first time or back. And those, those people have started companies here. And now you see the venture firms basically following them. But by and large,
1: founders and investors alike point to the lighthouse companies from the previous decade as the catalysts in and of themselves. For example, Harry cites the likes of Revolut, Spotify, and Klana, while participants in the German ecosystem such as Jan all point to the company spun out of the Samwer brother led, Rocket Internet, as foundational. There is a tribute to be paid to the Zambers because I think they really kickstarted the ecosystem. Yan is a founder turned VC who is currently a partner at HV Capital. Prior to joining HV in 2017, Jan founded Hitmeister, a leading German e-commerce company, which he ultimately sold to Kaufland. Following that, he joined Wooga, a mobile gaming company, helping it scale from 30 to 300 employees
8: and grow to generate almost $100 million in revenue. A lot of people who built startups later went through the Oliver Sommer School of Management, which you can argue with, but it tends to get things done. And in the beginning, it was obviously predicated on finding ideas which work in the U.S. and then exporting them to other countries, which means Europe, but also means Africa, Southeast Asia, and so on, which is, I think, often harder than it sounds. It laid the basis. Further exposing the
1: geographical specificity of flywheels. Brian Burke, a principal at Keene, an Amsterdam-based fund, points to the Adyen Matthews' role in seeding the Dutch ecosystem.
2: In Amsterdam alone, companies like Adyen have now spun off so many really interesting, cool startups and scale-ups. And you're seeing more and more founders that have had these awesome success stories and even really early employees starting to angel invest, starting little angel networks. They're investing in funds like ours, luckily. So there's more capital than ever, but I think one really cool source is from these mature scale-ups that are now reinvesting in the ecosystem.
1: What exactly caused the European tech flywheel to start is not a question that could be definitively answered. Perhaps a clue to the puzzle lies in the fact that so many different companies were cited as catalysts and that there was a clear regional skew to which companies were cited by whom. This geographic bifurcation suggests that Europe shouldn't be viewed as one single venture market with an individual flywheel, but rather a set of different, interconnected markets with similar, simultaneously operating flywheels. While there was no rocket internet equivalent in the UK or Sweden, there were the likes of Revolut, Spotify and Cocardlers to drag those ecosystems into existence and train the next generation of entrepreneurs. And given talent talented Europe is relatively mobile across borders, one country or city ecosystem could seed and start the flywheel in the next. Before we conclude, we wanted to highlight a much more bearish view of Europe. Dennis Kent, founder of Prolific Machines, like many of the other participants, cited the importance of flywheels in building the venture ecosystem.
7: These things snowball. Like what's happened in the Bay area is a very clear example of it, where there was this initial wave of success, and then a bunch of founders became extremely wealthy. And then most of those founders reinvested their money into more startups, which then created more founders that were extremely wealthy that then reinvested their money. And this wealth creation drew in more VCs into the area, which drew in more talent into the area. And then because there were more talent, then there were even more VCs and this whole thing just snowballed. And now. I can't throw a rock without hitting like a car T cell company.
1: He, however, differs from
7: our other guests in that he doesn't believe that this has happened in Europe yet. I think that like this, the snowballing effect that has happened in the Bay area hasn't happened in Europe and people might be trying to get it started, but it's very, so something that's very hard to, to get started. But once something, once it's started, it's, it's, it's self-propagating and so. The talent in Europe, I think is underutilized because this sort of innovation snowball effect hasn't really happened in Europe and whether it will or not, I think is still unclear to me. Dennis's
1: views are informed by his personal experience raising on both sides of the Atlantic in 2020
7: and 2021. I was interested in starting the company in the UK and I spoke to an accelerator in London and. The terms that they offered me, they liked the idea and the terms that they offered me was 50,000 pounds for 10% of the company. And then I applied for uh, a couple us accelerators and they offered me $500,000 for 10% of the company. And so like the terms were very different. And so I ended up, we applied to IndieBio, which is like a quite a famous biotech accelerator. And within 24 hours, they were like. We really like this. Like, you guys should come out here. And I was sick of Northern European weather. <laughs> <laughs> and so the idea of living in California appealed to me. I also had these like, big dreams about waking up and surfing in the morning and like enjoying like the Californian lifestyle, which hasn't really materialized. (laughs) Turns out starting a startup is quite all encompassing, but I did have these big hopes and dreams about my wonderful Californian lifestyle. So yeah, that's why I came to California. How do we reconcile
1: these views? The answer might be in Dennis's company's focus. Prolific
7: machines is inventing a new way to grow cells and Basically what we're doing is eliminating the need for recombinant proteins, which are these extremely expensive things that you need to add into media, which is like the soup that cells grow in and these media costs account for somewhere between 60 to 90% of total costs in cultured meat production and and other things uh, like cell-based therapies and basically anything where you need to grow cells, you need these recombinant proteins and they're extremely expensive. And so we found a way to eliminate them. While Europe has generally become far
1: more hospitable for founders, several investors expressed the sentiment that funding for deep tech companies in Europe remains lackluster.
4: There are whole swathes of the technology markets which are completely underfunded, and we don't see much competition at all. James Wise again. Have any differentiated thesis really makes a difference to your returns. And as we think about the areas that we really want to invest in, so from changing our food supply, using software to change our food supply chain, to decarbonize our homes, to uh, reinvent the way we think about organic chemistry and applications of synthetic biology, all the way through to deep applications of machine learning in new segments, whether it's construction or advanced materials. These are all areas where we've got theses in house. We're working on those theses in house and developing them. And I feel like in the long run, that's going to be our and continues to be our area of differentiation.
1: HV proposes a structural argument to explain Europe's
8: relative skittishness around deep tech. I think one thing you have to remember is that there's still, if you look at Europe versus the US, but especially Israel, there's probably a, depending on the country, three to 10 X gap in the amount of venture funding available. And I think then the venture funding goes to the easiest investments first. On a macro level versus going into the uh, maybe a little bit crazy risk return ones, which I think is a pity. And then on the other hand, I think there is also, and it's reflected in the first statistics, there is a lack of patient European capital. And for example, talking about decarbonization, we see good stuff coming out of universities, but a lot of it is. I'd say three to five years from a technology readiness level, three to five years before commercialization. Meaning if we have a 10 year fund time, even if we invest on day one, it will always lag behind the divine bazaars and the consumer startups. And that's why I believe there is then also funding missing either grants or philanthropy, et cetera, at the earlier stages before things become VC compatible. To summarise, it seems that like the flywheel hasn't quite turned enough times to reach deep tech
1: in Europe. European tech has clearly changed a lot in the last decade. Working in and around startups has gone from marginal activity to mainstream career choice, and potentially something people look up to. European startups as an asset class have gone from being overlooked due to their lackluster returns to outperforming the returns of the most mature venture ecosystems. While there still is room for development in terms of total funding available and in riskier areas like deep tech, the establishment of virtuous cycle-powered tech ecosystems across European cities has led to global attention. In particular, attention from American funds, who just a few years ago considered Europe little more than a backwater. In the coming episodes of this mini-series, we will unpack why the American funds are coming now the effects this European gold rush will have on the ecosystem for both incumbent funds and founders, and the unique difficulties launching in Europe entails. Thanks for listening.